We are continuing through the book of Mark. I've labeled this or titled this message, Not Business as Usual. You can open up your bulletin. You'll see an outline on the inside left side of your bulletin where you can follow along. How many of you guys like politics? One, two, okay, all right, great. This is going to go off well then. <laughs> well, I stay out of, I mean, I, in, I vote and all of that, but I usually keep politics out of the pulpit. But one of the things that drives me crazy every time we have an election year, especially this last time where we have many different senators and representatives going up and congressmen, it seems to me that they always say the same thing. We're going to bring change. Isn't that always the message? If you've lived long enough to see several elections, it seems to be the same message every time. We're going to bring change. It's not going to be business as usual in the White House. It's not going to be business as usual in Sacramento. Right? We just had a governor elected and it's time to change. Well, they all say that. Every single one of them, Republican, Democrat, whatever party it is. And what happens is they get up there and the establishment says, oh, that was nice. I'm glad you said those things. And I'm glad you got elected because you said those things. But there's no change going on here. See, because we like business as usual. We have an established way of doing things. We have our cherished programs and our policies. We're going to tell you how things get done around here. And unfortunately, many of them are elected, and I, I would believe with the best of intentions and motives. But then they are crushed, in a sense, uh, when they arrive into the machine that we call our government. People generally also do not respond well to change, and I don't understand why. For instance, climate change. I don't understand what the big deal is. I've thought this out. Do you know climate change is the idea that the earth is heating up, and as the earth heats up, the ice caps will melt. And as the ice caps melt, water will come onto the shores of our land and cover them. Well, I've looked at the elevation of Fontana and Rancho Cucamonga, and I've looked at the elevation of Orange County. I think we're going to be in pretty good shape, actually. I don't understand what the big deal is, because my wife and I love the beach, and it takes us at least an hour to get there. And I'm thinking, with all of my calculations, 10 minutes, babe, after some little bit of climate change. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But you can see in France, for instance, I don't know if you watch the news, rioting in the streets because they made one little change. They changed the retirement law to say this, you can no longer retire at the age of 60, you now have to wait until you're 62. And people are flipping out. People do not like change. It makes us nervous and suspicious, but it is often necessary and needful. And good, and good. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus in Mark chapter 2 because He's bringing nothing but change. Nothing but change. It is not business as usual for Jesus. And the people are freaking out. They are freaking out. So let's look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. We'll read through verse 22. Just, if you're taking notes, I always let you know there are parallel stories of of this particular account in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, and also in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. 
We are looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Let's read the text together. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Jesus just is odd sometimes, the way he answers questions. This is how he answers it. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And he goes on. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this morning we're going to answer the question, what does a wedding party, a worn garment, and aged wineskins have to do with fasting? So that we do not miss the significance here of Jesus' words. We're going to start with the fasting. That's the practice. The practice of fasting. If you look in the Evangelical Dictionary, there is one. It's a dictionary you, you know, referring to Christian terms and practices. It says, Fasting in Scripture is linked to the act of total or partial abstinence from food for a limited period of time. Just in case you don't know, I want to fill you in a little bit about fasting. It's usually undertaken for moral or religious reasons. And nearly all religions promote or endorse fasting to one degree or another. Now, in our Bible, the Old Testament, as we look back in the first part of our Bible, the Jews were instructed to hold a public fast only once a year. In other words, the requirement is that they only had to fast once a year. That was on the Day of Atonement. And you can refer back to that in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 through 31. Their fasting was an act of repentance and they were reminded once a year of their sins before God and sacrifices would be made on their behalf for the sins of the people. So fasting was part of that event. The Old Testament also refers to special public or private fast. So a public fast would just be that everybody knows it's going on. We're all fasting together. A private fast means you're doing it in the privacy of your home. Your neighbor does not necessarily know that you're fasting. It was often joined with prayer, and it signified, in some cases, mourning over the dead. So there was a connection between fasting and mourning over the dead, someone who had just recently died. You can see that in 1 Samuel 31, verse 13, and also in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12. It was also connected to repentance, turning from sin, and sorrow for sin. You can see that in Joel, the prophet Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. And in the Old Testament, fasting was connected to demonstrating a serious concern before God in times of real crisis or potential crisis. So if an enemy was evading, they might hold a fast and pray because they wanted to devote themselves fully and completely to praying and asking for God's mercy before these enemies. And you can see that in Second Chronicles, 
chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And I'm not telling you this just so you can be more efficient in your knowledge about fasting in the Old Testament. It has a point. We'll get to it in a minute. The Pharisees went above and beyond what was practiced or required in the Old Testament, and they promoted voluntary fasting twice a week. Now, I say promoted. It was almost a mandate. But in a sense, it was promoted. You didn't have to do it. It wasn't the law. But if you didn't do it, you were looked down upon. They fasted on Monday and Thursday. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember, or you might not, we read in Luke chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And do you remember that the Pharisee stood proudly and proclaimed that he fasted twice a week? That wasn't unusual. He was simply doing what the Pharisees did. He fasted twice a week like all the other Pharisees. Fasting was misused or abused. And we see that. Some thought that they could use fasting, abstaining from food for a period of time, to manipulate God. If you want to see a reference for that, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Others used it as a substitute for genuine repentance. So the idea goes like this. If I just deny myself food, then I don't have to do anything else. In other words, there has to be no heart change. I can just go through the motions of practicing a fast. You'll see that in Zechariah chapter 7. Or some used it as a way to appear more spiritual to others. You'll see that in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus rebukes the hypocrites for fasting in a public way and making themselves look drawn out and hungry so that everyone thought, wow, they really are spiritual people. Look how often they fast. Or, in the case of Luke 18 that we read last week, someone might use a fast wrongly to earn God's love. There was a sense when the Pharisee was proudly proclaiming that the fact that he fasted twice a week and he tithed of all that he had, the idea was that somehow that earned him special favor with God. In general, if we had to just make a general statement, fasting allows for an undivided and concentrated devotion or focus. Sometimes to God, sometimes in the association with mourning, it's just the fact that you're not going to break in the middle of crying and tears and grief to eat. And so that's why often fasting was associated with a funeral and sadness and mourning. Now, this is not an exhaustive study on fasting. I'm not going to stop to do a topical through fasting or even what role fasting should play in the church today. That's really not the point of the text. I just wanted to bring you up a little bit on some historical information about fasting as it relates to the Old Testament and the time that Jesus found himself. By the first century, fasting became an important part of the practice of Judaism. And Judaism is the religion of the Jews. Regular weekly fasting was not, as we have just said, mandated in the law of Moses, but it was promoted by the Pharisees. Remember, the only requirement was a public fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Fasting was typically associated with mourning, repentance, or very somber and serious concern. In other words, fasting was not seen as a happy time or a joyful time. 
That's the key. So we're told in verse 18 that John's disciples, as we read it, verse 18, I'll read it to you again, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. We're told that they were fasting, implying that they were fasting at the time the question was asked. That's what's implied. Now that's interesting. And this is a little bit of speculation. I told you we've got to be careful about speculation. But this is pretty good speculation. This story immediately follows the one we looked at last week. Do you remember what happened last week? This is always scary for the pastor to ask that type of question. And so he will not pause too long. And he will say, Jesus was feasting with tax collectors and sinners. He was eating and drinking. This story that we're looking at this morning follows that story. It is very possible that on the very day that the Pharisees were having their fast and the disciples of John were fasting, mourning, denying themselves food, on that day, Jesus and His disciples were at a house with Levi and his friends and his tax collectors and sinners having a party, feasting and eating and drinking. They were having a good time. You see the tension? They're a little frustrated by this. I don't get this. Jesus, you go off and have a good time, but we're denying ourselves. Why aren't you denying yourself? And that brings us to the probing, which is the question that the Pharisees or the people, it says here, the people, some people came. Matthew tells us it was John's disciples or disciples of John. But the idea is there's a group that's gathered here to ask him a question. And here's the question. Look back at your text, verse 18, the latter half. Question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? As I said, fasting in Jesus' day was the expected norm. That's what the people did among the religious and presumed to be evidence of one's devotion to God. Of one's devotion to God. So one writer or commentator says this, quote, Since Jesus and his disciples formed a serious religious group, it was regarded as astonishing that they did not adhere to the religious practices of the day. To the religious practices of the day. In other words, here's what they're really asking. Jesus... <laughs> Are you aware of what you should be doing? See, because they could have just asked. If this was simply a question of curiosity, they could have just said, Jesus, I'm just wondering, do you ever fast? Is there any reason you don't fast now? I haven't seen you fast. But instead, they remind Jesus politely, the Pharisees fast, and the disciples of John fast. Hint, hint. Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you fasting? Why do others mourn while Jesus' disciples get to have a good time eating and drinking? Jesus, why aren't you instructing your disciples properly in the ways of Judaism? Why aren't you doing that? And Jesus, flat out, according to the onlookers, was not following the recognized protocol. 
Okay? And it was disturbing to the religious establishment. It was disturbing. So Jesus responds in his normal way by using illustrations. He uses three pictures, and that's the next point in your outline. And he starts by responding to their question with a question. With a question. He says to them, Mark chapter 2, look back at your text. This first picture is a wedding party. Okay, I'll answer your question. And it is, when I said it was odd, there was a lot of things Jesus could have said besides talking about a wedding party, old clothes, and wine. I mean, I don't think they were expecting this, certainly. He could have said, oh, let me get back to you. Oh, we forgot to fast. Oh, we just don't do that. No. He starts talking about a wedding party. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Question. And it's a rhetorical question, meaning that it assumes that everyone knows the answer. The answer would be no. But just to make sure they knew, he answers his own question. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And then he goes on to say, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So here's a little history for you. A Jewish wedding normally lasted seven days. Think about that, honey. Do you remember how much it cost for Ayla's wedding? Seven days. I mean, the, listen, if you know Jewish people, the one thing that you can say about them is they know how to party. They do. They are excellent at this. Having a good time, singing. Have you ever been to a Jewish wedding? Anybody been to a Jewish wedding? It is it's something else. It's something else. It is a good time. They don't do it for seven days, I don't think, here in the States anymore. But they, they would last seven days. It was a time of celebration which included a lot of food. Okay? Because if it's a good party, it better have a lot of food. A lot of wine. I don't need to say the following. And a lot of singing and dancing. It was a huge affair. It was a big deal. And Jewish custom exempted the guest during the seven days from certain religious observances, such as fasting. Even the rabbis, those who taught the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish pastors, would temporarily suspend their classroom time during that week, that special week, and they and their students would go to the party to celebrate the wedding. It was that significant. The idea of the wedding guest starting a fast, okay, during this feast in the presence of a celebrating groom (laughs) was simply ridiculous and inappropriate. That's what Jesus is saying. Sorrow and joy don't go together. Jesus now is comparing His presence on earth with a wedding party. With a wedding party. He is the bridegroom and His disciples are His guests. That's what He's saying. Why would my guests be sad? Why would they show sorrow? Why would they mourn? Why would they hold a fast when the bridegroom is here? His presence was with them was a reason to celebrate, not to mourn. 
But see, those who saw Jesus as nothing more than just another religious leader, the idea that He would fail to teach His followers to fast, in their minds, was irresponsible. And so they came and and they were bothered by it. And they were asking Him the question. Look back too at verse 20. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus suggested, more than suggested, predicted, prophesied, that a time was coming when He, the bridegroom, would be taken away. The idea is violently taken away. And then, on that day, there would be mourning and fasting and sorrow and grief that also would be very strange to the listeners that first heard that. Here's why. To you and I, we may not understand it because at our weddings, the end of the event is when the bride and the bridegroom get into the car and everyone waves and they leave, right? Yay! And the wedding is officially over and cleanup starts, right? That's how it works. Not in a Jewish wedding. In a Jewish wedding, the man, the bridegroom, would go and get his bride from his father's house, from her father's house, from her father's house, bring her back to his house that he had prepared for her, and there they would have this seven-day feast celebration where the marriage would be consummated. The party after the seven days, would leave. And they would leave the bride and the groom to continue their beautiful and wonderful life together. The idea that the bridegroom would be snatched away during the wedding party was completely foreign to the listeners. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus says is going to happen to him. He is predicting what he already knows is going to come true that the religious leaders would promote the idea that he was a blasphemer wrongly and accuse him of such and call for his death. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we're only not even a few verses away from it. All of these situations, starting in Mark chapter 2, where he's having confrontations with the religious leadership, are building up to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. You can flip there if you'd like. It's just to your right. After one more event where Jesus was not doing business as usual, they had it. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Him how to destroy Him. He knows what's coming. He's predicting His very death. And He says, in that day... There will be feasting and mourning. But today, the bridegroom is here. Why in the world would my people not celebrate? They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now he goes beyond that. And the answer becomes bigger to a greater principle. And he uses the second picture of a worn garment. Look back at the text with me. Mark chapter 2, verse 21. No one sews 
a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Okay, again, we're given an example of two things that should not go together. The first one was, joy does not go together with mourning or sadness. Celebration and feasting does not go together with fasting and denial. Now we see an old cloth and a new patch being put together. And the idea is simply this. You don't put an unshrunk cloth. What that means is it's brand new. It's brand new because it's never been washed. It's never been exposed to water. That's why it's unshrunk. You don't put it on a worn out garment. Why? Because when that garment then gets wet and the new piece shrinks, it'll rip away from the stitch that you made, causing a worse tear to the old garment, and the new one will simply not be able to be put on the old garment. That's what he's saying. It's an illustration that they would have readily recognized in their day. They understood. So here's the point. The new strong piece is going to pull away from the old, torn, and tattered piece. And there is no way to patch up the old with the new. It will not work. So just keep that thought. We're going to tie this all together, hopefully. (laughs) Hopefully at the end. Stay with me. You cannot patch an old piece onto... I'm sorry. You cannot patch a new piece onto the old. It will not work. It will actually destroy the old piece. Then he gives one more illustration they would be very familiar with and maybe we're not so familiar with. Look back at the text. Mark chapter 2, verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Again, here we go. The old cannot contain the new. It will not work. Goat skins. They would strip a goat, use his skins. They were used as containers for liquid, including wine. And they were good containers. The problem was is that old skins did not retain their elasticity. So you know how a skin stretches, right, pregnant mothers? Theoretically, you know how your skin keeps stretching? Well, it's no different. The goat's skin would stretch, but after time, and here's where the comparison, I didn't want it to stop, it becomes brittle. It becomes brittle, and that posed a problem because of the process of fermentation. The process of fermentation is where the grape juice, hopefully, I know you guys didn't come here to become wine experts, but it's important, Grape juice is joined together with other ingredients and there's a chemical reaction that produces wine. You just don't find it in the ground. They actually have to do something to the grapes to make it alcoholic and turn it into wine. They add yeast and some other things and it's added and it converts the natural sugars that are found in grape juice into ethanol and carbon dioxide. The carbon dioxide is then released from the wine into the air, and what you have left is the good stuff, right? The stuff that you bring to the party, the wine. Now, the carbon dioxide would escape into these skin containers. 
And it was fine as long as it was a new container because as it did, the container would... But if you put new wine into old wine skins, as the carbon dioxide released, the skin couldn't handle it and it would burst open. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. So old containers lost their ability to stretch and the result was, if you put new wine into them, would be a rupture in that skin and a loss of the new wine and destruction of the original container. So, what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? What bigger truth is he presenting? And here it is. Jesus could not be confined to the old traditional forms of Judaism, which is the religious way of life that Jesus' audience was very familiar with and very comfortable with. In each picture that Jesus gives us, there's two things that flat out should not come together. He starts by saying, just as a way of review, a time of feasting and a time of fasting. They don't go together. A new patch and an old garment. They don't go together. New wine on, in old wineskins. They don't go together. And Jesus is saying that His way and the established way of Judaism at the time in the first century were completely incompatible. See, the Jews at the time were still confused. The people were still confused. They did not understand yet and still would not understand for some time and would not fully understand until Jesus hung on a cross, died on that cross, was put into a grave and rose again three days later. They would not fully understand until then that Jesus brought something entirely new. The idea that Judaism was going to work that they could take Jesus and put him into Judaism or that they could patch Judaism onto Jesus would not work. He was not there to do business as usual. His coming created an entirely new state of affairs and the people were struggling to adjust. Even the disciples would struggle and you'll see that as we read through Mark. Because... When Jesus came, Judaism at that point became a system that somehow they believed would get you to God. If you just followed the Old Testament law, and by this time, they had added additional laws and rules and regulations and ceremonies like fasting twice a week. If you just are good and follow our procedures and our laws, somehow that will earn you favor with God. That's not going to work with the gospel and the grace and the message that Jesus was bringing. Because his message was you cannot be right with God by keeping the Old Testament law. I don't care how many additional rules and regulations and ceremonies you practice or holidays you follow, none of them will fulfill your ability to stand before God in righteousness. That's why you need me. That's why you need grace. You can't take me and patch it on to the Old Testament law. This reminds me of wife swap. Wife swap. If you watch, you don't have to raise your hand. Just You can say it in your heart. 
If you don't know, it's a terrible show. It's a terrible. I don't recommend it, but I have sadly watched it a few times. Wife Swap is this show where it's not as bad as it sounds, but they take, because they, that sounds really bad, they take a wife from one family. They're always two different, entirely different families. Like they live entirely different. So, they, for example, a simple example would be a country family and a city family, but it's usually way worse than that. I mean, they take a Christian family, theoretically, and an atheist family, and they take the wife. And they swap them. They put this wife in this house and this wife in this house. And the idea goes something like this. They are to live according to the rules of that house for a few days, I think. And then after that few days is up, the house now has to live according to the rules of the new wife. (laughs) And that's where the show begins. You see? Because that's where all the tension breaks out. And Jesus comes, in a sense... And he says, you've been living according to all these rules and regulations and this is how your house runs and operates. But guess what? There is a new master in town. There is something way bigger in town. The bridegroom has arrived. And what I bring is altogether different than what you are familiar with or accustomed to or have believed wrongly will make you right with God. It's altogether different. And you're going to have to accept that now. And that's why there was such a great tension. See, because unless they believe that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, that He is the Messiah and He is the Son of God, why would they follow Him? Why would they submit to Him? They've been doing it this way for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's no different than when we send our senators and our congressmen up to the House or to the government or to wherever, Washington, and they say to them, please... You don't understand a thing. You're green behind the ears. This is the way we do things here. Don't bring all your new crazy ideas. And to Jesus, to them, Jesus was just some new guy bringing a lot of crazy ideas. Now I want you to look at a text with me, a couple of texts before we finish today. John chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Fourth Gospel. John chapter 1. I want to see you to see the newness of what Christ was bringing. What the people failed to see at this time. Mark chapter 1, page 886, if you're using a church Bible. Starting in verse 14. The disciple John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's referring to Jesus Christ. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15. John, he's referring to John the Baptist, bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. Stop right there. That's interesting. Because John the Baptist was born before Jesus and John the Baptist began his ministry before Jesus. What is he talking about that he came before him? He's referring to his pre-existence. He's making a reference to the fact that he is the very Son of God, the Eternal One. He has always existed. And because of that, he ranks way above John the Baptist. Back to the text, verse 16. And from his fullness, that is Jesus, we have all received what? Grace 
upon grace. Verse 17, and here it is. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One commentator writes in reference to this passage that the greatness of the old time period prior to Christ was the arrival, or prior to Christ's arrival, was the giving of the law by God through his servant Moses. No other nation has ever had such a privilege as that. But the glory of the church, that is us, all those who have been bought and purchased by the blood of Christ and redeemed through Him. The glory of the church is the revelation of God's grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus coming to earth, beloved, was revolutionary in that it brought a new age that is the age of grace. And grace cannot be contained in the old skin of the law. Grace cannot be patched onto the law of Moses. And grace produces joy, not sorrow and mourning. By Jesus' pictures, one commentator writes, He distinguished between the legality of the past and the grace that He had come to reveal. So what do I do with this for us today? Just like the Jews in the first century when Jesus came to earth who had been exposed to the law and wrongly believed that the law somehow would make them right with God. When in reality the law, according to the Word of God, was given to drive them to their knees and cry for mercy and forgiveness because the law simply condemns them again and again and again. The law shows them where they fail again and again and again. And the law should have taught them to be ready and prepared for the grace that Jesus would bring. Instead, they thought the law somehow would make them right with God. So the idea of grace was foreign. You know, grace means undeserved kindness or favor. That's what it means. To even talk about grace is to say you don't deserve it. If you deserved grace, it wouldn't be grace. Do you understand? If you deserved it, if you somehow could have earned it, it would not be grace. And still today, people have a hard time. This is the issue among people. They have a hard time accepting Christ on His terms. Grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. They struggle to abandon the idea that they can somehow achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to His law or by devotion to religious rituals or traditions. Listen, we have major institutions of religion. I don't even have to name them. Maybe you're familiar. That teach this is how you get to God. 
by keeping religious traditions or rituals, by being a keeper of the law. The law condemns. Turn to the right. Galatians chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, this is the last passage we'll look at. Page 973. Listen to what the Word of God says and let it sit in your heart and your mind. Here is Paul. He's writing about the law versus the promise of God. And he's talking about why exactly did God give the law in the first place then? Why did He give it? Why is it important? And so he's making this argument and we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 3. And Paul says this, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is it, is it opposite? Is it opposed to the promises of God? And Paul says, absolutely not. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, if that was possible, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It, listen, this is what he's saying. If God, if it was possible that He could have given us a law that would make us right with Him, then certainly righteousness could come through the law. But what he's saying is it's not possible. He goes on. But the Scripture, verse 22, imprisoned everything. And when he says Scripture, beloved, he's referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't even been completed yet. He's saying the Old Testament Scripture, the law, the Torah, it took everything and put it into prison and closed it under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? The promise comes through keeping the law? How's it come? By faith in Jesus Christ. By trusting in Jesus Christ. That's how it comes. And here's what one commentator says. Is there conflict between the law and the promises of God? No. God gave both the law and the promises, but for different purposes. And this is key. And it was not the purpose of the law to give life or salvation. But if the law is not opposed to the promises, how can, there be, how can harmony between the two be demonstrated? By this by recognizing that while the law could not justify or give us life, it did prepare the way for the gospel of grace. What part then did law play in this respect? It declared the whole world a prisoner of sin. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul declared that the whole world is trapped under the dominion and power of sin. And when people recognize this and give up attempts to please God by their own works, the way is prepared for them to receive the promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. I know we talked about this last week and I'll say it again. It's the same thing over and over again. And this is what I find. Believers, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you're trusting in Him and Him alone, 
for you the danger is that you believe that you came to be made right with God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by His grace through faith alone. You believe it. And then you think, but the way I will continue to be made into God's image is by keeping the law. No. That's not true. And so some of you are saying, what are you saying? That you don't have to keep the law? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you will be motivated by grace. The law was never intended to motivate you to be made right with God. It was to show you how you fall drastically and woefully, that's the word I was looking for, short of the righteous, perfect standard of God. But grace now, you go back again to grace and you are motivated by the fact that you were a sinner condemned to death, separation from God forever, and by the grace, undeserved favor of God, you were made right and forgiven and cleansed of your sins. And that motivates you towards love. And now you want to live for Christ. Not because you're trying to earn merit or favor or even be made right. You've already been made right in Jesus Christ. For you as a believer, it's a whole different perspective. It's a whole other ballgame. It is not business as usual. It's revolutionary. It's something like this. If I, if I bought my wife flowers because it was the right thing to do, it was, I was told, you know, here's the things you need to do to keep your wife happy. Okay? And the, you know, the list is long, guys. <laughs> All right. So I do them. Okay? Versus, I am crazy mad in love with my wife. So I buy her flowers. Which one do you think my wife receives better? I botched the flowers, honey, because number four on the list said <clears throat> that you would be happy if I brought these stupid things home that die in a few days. Uh, so, are you happy? Or, woman, I'm so crazy about you. I don't even know. I just buy flowers. It doesn't even make sense. But I know, it, I know it makes you happy. And when I see you happy, it just makes me happy. See, that's grace. See, that's what God's calling us to. That now we serve Christ out of grace. We're motivated by the love that He extended to us. And it can't but help impact our hearts and our minds that when we continue to remember by grace you have been saved you are undone and you can't but love your Savior and Redeemer and Master and King and now you do what you do not because you're trying to fulfill the law you've given up with that you can't fulfill the law that's already been proven that's why Christ had to come and die but out of love, you serve Him. You honor Him. You give yourself to Him. And for you, unbeliever, and when I say unbeliever, I mean this. For you that say you believe in Jesus Christ, but yet, if I asked you, well, what makes you right with God? Well, it's obviously my good life. 
You don't get it. You don't get it. You think the law was given to make you right with God? You think that by keeping some rituals or, or going to church on a regular basis or even reading your Bible, you think that makes you right with God? It doesn't. Because you're a sinner. And you need to be forgiven of your sin. And you need the righteousness of Christ. And that's the only place you can get it. And you need to come to grips with that and cry out for His mercy and recognize your depravity. We're low. And this is what, and I'm just going to transition right now, this is what makes this, today we're going to celebrate communion. And it's what makes this so special. Jesus was a master of using illustrations and pictures to communicate the truth of grace. We are going to partake here in a moment of drinking some grape juice and eating a cracker, (laughs) a little piece of bread, because Jesus commanded His disciples before He was taken away and crucified, He told them, here, eat of this bread. It is My body that I'm giving for you. And drink this wine. It is My blood, My death made on behalf of you. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will remember Me and what I did for you. Something that you could not do for yourself. And you will remember that I am coming again for you because you will continue to do it until I come. And what's interesting is, beloved, we take this meal together. This is one of the reasons why I just ask you when the elements are passed, wait, I'll stand back up, and then we'll partake together. Because what we're demonstrating is is that we are united together. We partake of the same bread and the same cup because we all came to salvation through the same way. We all get to God through Christ. So I don't care what your occupation is or what side of the tracks you live on or how smart you are or how not smart you are. See how carefully I said that? That, None of that matters. Because we're all brought low. We're all brought low before Jesus. We're all brought leveled to the ground. And we all enter in through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we will celebrate this morning. And let me tell you something. It is a celebration. Don't mourn. This is a time, and I'm careful to use the word party because I know it means all kinds of other bad things. But it is a glorious party. It is a redeemed party. We this morning partake of this meal, celebrating together our union in Jesus Christ and our certain salvation because of what He has accomplished and the righteousness that we have now because of Him. We celebrate, guys. We celebrate. So that's what we should do. I'm going to pray for this morning's offering. The men will come forward. They'll distribute the elements. If you're not a believer, it's not for you. Don't partake. If you are a believer, praise God and partake with joy this morning. All right? Let's pray.